Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. As COVID-19-related restrictions are beginning to ease in many countries, many people are starting to think about what our everyday lives will be like post-COVID. There is speculation about what the new normal could look like. In the June 2020 issue of Monocle magazine, the editor Tyler Brulé wrote, We don't want a heavy-handed new normal. We want people to act responsibly, but we also want families, businesses and countries to thrive. And we want to shake hands, hug, strip off and dive into life. So what could the new normal look like? This is a question I've been thinking about quite a bit lately and I've decided to record some of my thoughts and present them as this episode. Thanks to Taylor Rose Hull, Research Officer at My Business Adept Economics, for her help in preparing these remarks. The scale and pace of the shock resulting from COVID-19 has resulted in massive social and economic changes and we should probably expect that things won't go back to exactly how they were before. That said, if we look back at history, the 1918 Spanish flu was followed by a decade of prosperity and hedonism throughout the Roaring Twenties before the Great Crash. Not having a crystal ball, it's hard to say what will happen, and a lot will of course depend on whether a vaccine becomes available. Let's start by considering the tourism and hospitality sectors and what the new normal could look like there. The World Travel and Tourism Council has warned that COVID-19 could cut 50 million jobs worldwide in the travel and tourism industry. And even after the outbreak is over, it could take many months for the industry to recover. The UN World Tourism Organisation has estimated a loss of 850 million to 1.1 billion international tourist arrivals. 910 billion to 1.1 trillion in export revenues and 100 to 120 million jobs, depending on whether the borders are opened. There are also the indirect losses via multiplier effects. In the long run, the World Travel and Tourism Council anticipates that international tourism will likely return to pre-pandemic levels within a 19-month period. The sector can then expect to benefit from a lot of pent-up demand and those tourism operators which can survive will then reap the benefits. The challenge, of course, is surviving. In Australia, we've been lucky the federal government has introduced the JobKeeper wage subsidy which is helping many businesses survive. It's possible we could see fewer tourism operators in the future as people realise it's a highly risky industry to be in particularly given the risk of future pandemics. But those businesses which survive and persist will reap the benefit of less competition, which may enable them to charge higher prices. I suspect they'll have to charge higher prices in the future so they can build up their financial reserves in case there is a future pandemic. In Australia, the loss of international and interstate tourism is a big issue for tourism-dependent regions such as far north Queensland, which will further decline if tourism doesn't fully recover. According to 
Tourism Tropical North Queensland's Mark Olson, the latest state border closure will cost the FNQ economy $100 million. For international listeners, in Australia we've been having a big debate about our interstate borders, with states such as Queensland shutting out residents from southern states where there is still community transmission of COVID-19 occurring. I expect COVID-19 will prompt community leaders in tourism-dependent regions to think hard about how they could promote more diverse regional economies. They will realise the challenges of being so dependent on one sector. I expect we'll see initiatives from leaders in places such as the Gold Coast and Whit Sundays in Queensland and further afield in places like Bali aimed at promoting new industries. As an economist, I'm generally sceptical of initiatives to to promote specific industries, so these remarks of mine are observations rather than recommendations. Turning to the hospitality sector, which partly overlaps with the tourism sector, it was one of the first to get slammed by the COVID-19 crisis. While restrictions were in place, it's been estimated that every day the hospitality sector was shut down the US economy lost an average of $923 million in earnings and over 16,000 jobs. Looking to the future, hospitality industry stakeholders have suggested that the hospitality industry will have to learn to function differently. Firstly, by regaining customer confidence and strict hygiene measures will need to be applied, with new practices put in place to monitor and control the environment in which the business takes place. There is optimism that in time things will return to normal, but that might be a while to come yet as so much depends on the development of a vaccine. Even if we decide we can try to live with COVID, as Sweden has decided, people would still be reluctant to go to restaurants and cafes for fear of getting the virus. And Sweden has shown that even if you avoid lockdowns, you still suffer a negative economic shock as people cut back on their recreational activities and spending. Leading Australian think tank, the Grattan Institute, has estimated that 15 to 19-year-olds are the most likely to lose work due to shutdowns of non-essential services during COVID. COVID has consigned huge numbers of young people who disproportionately work in hospitality and in retail to the unemployment pool. And in the future, these young people may struggle to find new jobs as they will be competing with new entrants to the workforce who are younger than them. They will have missed many months of earnings and experience which would set them up for the future otherwise. Incidentally, I should mention there is credible evidence that periods of unemployment while young have long-term scarring impacts on people's earnings. Let me quote from a 2011 report written by Dr Nicholas Gruen, CEO of Lateral Economics and a former guest on this podcast. Consistent with this phenomenon of skills atrophy, evidence from the US, Germany and UK shows that when displaced workers do find work again, their wages are significantly and persistently lower than similarly qualified people who do not lose their jobs. The long-term wage penalty seems to average about 10% to 15% of pre-unemployment wages. 
people with multiple periods of long-term unemployment also appear to suffer a compounding effect. So periods of unemployment can have long-term consequences and many of those who've lost jobs during this period of the COVID crisis will have uh, will suffer long-term. Okay, many hospitality jobs may not come back post-COVID. Again, people may realise it's a risky industry given the prospect of shutdowns during pandemics. Something I never thought would be possible is that governments would force businesses to shut down, but we know now that they will do so if they perceive a risk to public health. This will probably change the willingness of people to open restaurants and cafes in the future. Also consider that there will likely be a decrease in the demand for cafes and restaurants in our CBDs, our central business districts and activity centres, as more people will be working from home post-COVID. I'll have a bit more to say on working from home a bit later. Moving on to retail trade, throughout the crisis there has been a shift in shopping habits leading consumers to increasingly abandon physical stores in favour of online shopping. The Queensland University of Technology's business school's retail expert Dr Gary Mortimer has noted that prior to COVID-19 many sectors of retail were struggling and we were already talking about a retail apocalypse with many big apparel brands going into receivership. Mortimer observed that Australians are now spending $32 billion online and he is confident that it is estimated 80% of us will be shopping online by next year and e-commerce will reach $35.2 billion. That's in Australia. As consumers can... Sorry... As consumers cocoon, choosing to stay in rather than go out, a new segment of shopper has emerged. These shoppers have found the need to shop online due to social distancing measures. The move to online shopping has seen more retailers turning their shops into dark stores, which are distribution warehouses set up with products for online shopping only. Recently, Kmart has converted three of its locations into dark stores and retail expert Gary Mortimer has noted that dark stores are a really efficient way to get a product to your customer in the lowest possible cost. I think that should be at the lowest possible cost. Amazon has reported sales soared to $75.5 billion in the first quarter up from $59.7 billion last year. Amazon's CEO Jeff Bezos's fortune has just surpassed $171 billion as coronavirus concerned consumers shop from home. There has also been a rise in food delivery services during COVID-19. Food ordering app Menulog recorded a 54% increase in orders from Melbourne customers since March. Damien Lawler, Managing Director of AIR Mutual Advisory, expects the trend towards increased deliveries to continue long after the pandemic passes. We are developing new habits 
which may result in permanently changed consumption patterns with implications for the availability of jobs, i.e. fewer jobs in malls and more on bikes delivering food. We are also likely to see continued growth in revenues of Amazon and Uber, big tech giants which politicians will no doubt be starting to look much more closely at. We may well see greater regulation of these businesses with the goal of keeping more of the money within local communities. We see regulators in California have tried to force Uber and other gig economy platforms to treat its contractors as employees. But that's currently on hold and it looks like it may be decided by the public on the November 3 election day just what happens there. So there's been some interesting news out of California, which I will put links regarding in the show notes. Regulators around the world will be looking to see what happens in California. I think that the COVID experience will make politicians and regulators more willing to take on the platform companies and big tech more broadly. Beyond retail and hospitality, there will be a new normal post-COVID in other aspects of the economy and society. Workplace flexibility may become the new norm, as many workers, particularly professionals, have become accustomed to working from home during this time of COVID. This can benefit businesses, which can then save money by not having to lease as much office space. But working from home does have some downsides. Many workers have lost a sense of work-life balance throughout the pandemic. According to a study by Twingate, 40% of employees have experienced mental exhaustion from video calls on Zoom or Skype, for example, while working remotely. Additionally, working from home can also lead to poorer communication with colleagues, resulting in many workers feeling isolated and getting distracted more frequently, possibly decreasing worker productivity. I expect we may end up with a hybrid approach with office space available for workers to collaborate or meet with clients and with workers having the option to work from home when it suits them. This could be usually beneficial to employees and could allow them to better balance work and family, allowing them the flexibility to pick up their children from school, for example, while also having that option of going into the office when they need to go into the office and to separate from home and distractions at home. We will still need the office, no doubt. In the same off issue of Monocle I quoted from earlier, contributor Jamie Waters observed in a piece titled I Miss My Desk that being separated from each other has highlighted the specific values that physical proximity has on office culture relationships and well-being. I couldn't agree more. Let's turn to considering the ultimate example of workplace flexibility, the gig economy. In a recent Harvard Business Review article, Will the Pandemic Push Knowledge Work into the Gig Economy? The authors suggested COVID-19 could well prove to be a pivotal point in the gigification of knowledge work. They observed, Many firms will be attracted by the prospects of the direct and indirect cost savings that the gig economy model seems to offer. 
Businesses have shed millions of workers and instead of rehiring permanent employees, they may prefer to rely on the gig economy. Whether on consultants, contractors or on cheap freelancers for hire on platforms such as Upwork. I should note that a lot of people will voluntarily choose to become gig workers. Certainly a lot of people are taking the time during COVID to experiment with becoming YouTubers or podcasters. While that appears to be a very challenging way to directly make a living, there's no doubt it can help people present themselves as experts in their fields and that can help them attract clients and gigs. It's been extraordinary just how well audio-visual businesses have done in recent months. At the local audio stores in Brisbane where I live, all the top-shelf microphones such as the SM7B, which Joe Rogan uses, sell out as soon as new stock arrives. People have more, times on, sorry, people have more time on their hands during COVID, whether they're working from home or they're unemployed, and they're using that time to develop new skills. COVID-19 is likely to have big implications for our cities and infrastructure requirements. With greater working from home and also due to the surge in bike purchases we saw in the early days of restrictions, we may not see a complete return to public transport in the new post-pandemic world. Regional areas are set to win as a result of COVID-19, or they may be set to win, as businesses become more open to remote working. We may see an influx of people moving to the outer suburbs. We may see an influx of people in the outer suburbs or in provincial towns. As people move out of dense inner cities, they find they don't need to live as close to work. In Australia, we call this type of movement a sea change or a tree change, depending on whether one moves to the coast or to the bush. Finally, I'll discuss what COVID means for the future balance between government and the private sector. A remarkable feature of this crisis is how quickly and how massively governments have intervened in their attempts to support economies. In a recent report, PwC suggests that there will be greater government involvement over our lives and the economy with increased levels of government support into the future. If you're a regular listener... You may recall leading US economic commentator Dr Dan Mitchell expressed his concerns about the growth of government during COVID in my discussion with him on industry bailouts earlier this year. On government support, in recent times there has been a lot of discussion of the concept of a universal basic income, UBI. UBI is an unconditional regular income payment to all residents regardless of their employment status and it's being discussed as a method to tackle economic uncertainty and inequality resulting from COVID-19. One-time contender for the Democratic presidential nomination Andrew Yang proposed monthly checks of $1,000 to every adult American. That was uh, before COVID-19 I should note but his uh, proposal has been extensively uh, referenced uh, during discussions during COVID-19. Those against a UBI worry that people may not be motivated to work if they receive guaranteed cash from the government. 
certainly a UBI would also be hugely expensive and require a redirection of government spending from other priorities or an increase in taxes. Despite the concerns that many economists have about a UBI, I wouldn't be surprised if we see experiments with UBI in the future. Many people who have lost their jobs during COVID will struggle to find new jobs as the economy recovers. And we may increasingly see so-called structural or technological unemployment as artificial intelligence and automation reshape industries in future decades. So I'd suggest that despite the problems with UBI, it's very possible we'll see a UBI sometime in the future. Overall, the COVID-19 crisis has exposed vulnerabilities across the economy, particularly in certain industries such as hospitality and tourism. There are a couple of issues I didn't get around to this episode, which I hope that I'll cover in future episodes. For instance, I've been thinking a lot about what COVID means for universities, which have had to move to online delivery. As marketing guru Seth Godin has observed, a lot of universities have shown that they aren't that good at online education and definitely can't justify their normal fee levels for the online education they're offering. I think we'll see a big shake-up in that sector and it's possible that some universities may not survive. It's possible we'll see a consolidation of the sector that there will be a group of elite universities that survive and can sell their courses throughout the world. It's possible we'll see a huge shake-up in higher education. Of course, there are benefits of traditional delivery methods of having people come to campus, but it may just be the prestigious sandstone universities as we call them in Australia it may just be those that survive so we'll have to wait and see what happens there another issue I'd like to cover in more depth is whether we'll see reshoring of manufacturing given all the concerns that have been expressed regarding the reliance of economies such as the US and Australia on manufactured goods from China I suspect the economic advantages of manufacturing a wide range of goods overseas and manufacturing them cheaply will ultimately mean that we don't see a lot of reshoring, but I'll try to cover this issue in a future episode nonetheless. It's unclear what economic future we'll have exactly after the crisis, but it seems increasingly clear that we'll see some sort of new normal post-COVID-19 with a number of shifts that have occurred remaining in some form post-recovery with many learned behaviours resulting from the crisis becoming central to the new normal. Thanks for listening and I'll be back with a new episode next week. Thank you. We've reached the end of another Economics Explained episode, so thanks for listening all the way through. If you're enjoying Economics Explained, please tell your family and friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or on whatever platform you are listening on. 
Finally, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. My email address is gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.